So we're going to be in the book of James, chapter 1. Um, the, the bulletin had a little little handout. I'm trying to, every week, give you a little bit more information uh, about James. And this one this one deals with the nature of fatherhood in the ancient, in the Greco-Roman world. Um, and why, why God is often described as a father in the New Testament, um, whereas he's not really described that way in the Old Testament. And it has to do with the cultural elevation uh, of fatherhood. Um, and the role of the father as provider. Um, but we're going to look in James chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 26. And we're going to be reading through into uh, chapter 2. James is going to set up a dichotomy for us. Um, he's going to set up a, a situation uh, that he's dealing with the topic of love and how we perceive each other. And how our perceptions alter our behavior. And he opens with this. If anyone, verse 26, James 1, 26... If anyone thinks he is religious, uh, and the word religious there does not mean just goes to church, but it's, it's the, the outward demonstration of faithfulness. Remember that James is a Jew. Um, his name is Yaakov, even though we say it in English as James. Um, he is, he's the brother of Jesus. He's the son of Joseph, uh, the son of Mary. He is, he is a good uh, Torah ob- observant Jew. It's the first time I've ever had fireworks during a sermon. Um, that was that good, that line right there. Um, but he's a good Torah observant Jew um, who, who has become a follower of Christ. He's come to faith in, in, in his half-brother Jesus as the Messiah uh, of Israel. And so this word religious, it describes the, the motions of the Jewish faithfulness of Torah observance. And you remember that Jesus, if you're familiar with some of the things that Jesus said, Jesus was highly critical of those who went through the motions of religion but had no substance to it. Um, And by highly critical, I mean at one point he calls them tombs that were painted white but are full of dead man's bones. Um, He's highly critical of them. Um, He he watches their behavior, he watches their attitudes, and he, he reflects on the interior life of people more than the exterior. The people that were so obsessed about making sure they got all the rules right that they forgot about the rule giver. And James carries that over. He says, if anybody, if anyone thinks he is religious, but he does not bridle his tongue, this person's religion is worthless. He does not bridle his tongue, but see, this person's religion is worthless, but he receive, deceives his heart. Wow, my eyes are crossing. That's interesting. Um, but as he's, as he's talking about this, we have a tendency to read that and we go, okay, so this is a general statement about our speech, about how we talk, about the control of our tongue. Now, we could certainly apply that, but James is dealing with a very specific situation in the church. He's dealing with some very specific matters in the church that he is writing to. He's, he contrasts, he says, this person's religion is worthless But then he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, I have read people try to make that this is a primary purpose of the church. The church's job is to take care of widows and orphans. And the argument is, well, the Bible says it. That must be true. But look at this statement in context. James is writing to the church. Now, we know that the early church um, was very concerned with widows and orphans. We can read about it in the book of Acts. We read it. um, uh, Paul writes about it in in his letters to Timothy. And it's all in that handout that I gave you. Um, But there's something more going on here. 
there's something more going on. And it is the nature of a, of a group of people who have accepted God as their father. He's not talking about widows and orphans in general, like go out into the world and just find all the widows and feed them. He's talking about in their faith community, there were widows and there were orphans who were going hungry and going homeless. There was something going on in the churches that James is writing to. And he says to them, how can you who call the father of lights your father from chapter one and verse 17? How can you possibly argue that you have pure and undefiled religion, that your religion, your faith is good when there are orators and orphans struggling in your midst? So he's setting up a dichotomy. He's drawing a line. He's saying, look, he says, I know that everybody says they are devoted to the scriptures. I know that everybody says that they're going to be that they're hearers of the word. I know that everybody sits under the sermon. I know that everybody reads their Bible. But when it ultimately comes down to it, I think that James might be paraphrased this way. How can you run at your mouth about how good a Christian you are when you abandon Christian charity for those in need? James is not giving a nice, delicate, soft, light commentary, but rather he has observed churches with people telling everybody how wonderful and strong and great they are and what great believers. And yet at the same time, there are widows and orphans in the back of the assemblies hoping to get some of the crumbs from the table. My brothers, he says, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The humility of James that he can refer to his half-brother Jesus. The guy who was always clean in his room and always obedient to his parents. That James had to grow up in the shadow of this man and yet realizing he is indeed the Christ and the Lord of glory. And, and James making his whole life about his brother, his half-brother Jesus. My brothers show no partiality. The beginning of chapter 2. As you hold fa the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Four, um, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. So put these in two separate columns. So these two men walk in at the same time. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say you sit here in a good place, you get the really nice bench. Well, you say to the poor man, you get to sit in the sun. You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called? So James looks at a church and he says there in the church that he's addressing, he says there's a deep problem that has resulted in a great division. 
That as, as the people who looked good, smelled good, paid for, for meals and did all the things, they were giving great honor by the, by the church. Now, that's a temptation from all of us. Right. I mean, we all we look at, you know, we look at celebrities and we think we think, wow, they are like another kind of person. And, and they are. All right. Just, so you know, um, celebrities, celebrities are completely and utterly disconnected from the world you live in. That's why you should never take social advice from them. All right. Anyone who can go Diet Coke and a Coke appears in their hand does not know your your situation. All right. Anyone who has to have a gate on their multi-million dollar summer home does not understand your life. All right. Um, but you know, what? celebrities, they're they, they've got a certain aura about them. I got to tell you something, even though it's been decades since he played played in basketball and I don't even know anything about basketball. If Michael Jordan walked into a room I was in, I would sit there stammering. Not knowing, I mean, first of all, I could barely come to his belt buckle, but, but I mean, there's a, there's an aura about those people. They're, they're special. They're important. They're amazing. All right. You know, I mean, there's situations where it's like, wow, this person is incredible, you know, and, and, and we want to do the best we can for them. We want to, we want to, you know, we, we, we have a tendency when we see somebody that's really rolling, we go, oh man, you know, they, they need, they need special treatment. And yet James says those people come into your church and the poor come into your church and you you don't you treat them. You treat one better than he deserves and one far worse than he deserves. And in reality, there is no division in Christ. There is no there is no. Well, you know, this person, they get special treatment from God because of what they do for a living or how handsome they are. Or, or any of those questions. And he says, you're, you're impressed by the wrong things. You're living your life by the wrong standards. And he says, what have the rich ever done for you? Now, this is a great moment with James. What have the rich ever done for you? Not that, not that someone who is wealthy or, or has been blessed, don't, they don't do great things. And wonderful things. It's not that they don't. But when we look at a, at a class of the rich and the poor, what advantage exists for the glory of God just from being rich? Why should they be given preference? And he reminds us, hey, by the way, just so you know, it was the privileged class who persecuted and oppressed Christ and the disciples. It was the privileged class that drove the Jews out of Jerusalem that James is writing to. The believers were Jewish believers were driven out of Jerusalem by the privileged class, by the ones that Jesus looked at and said, look at them, look at the way they come into the, the temple and they blast the trumpet and they make sure everybody sees I'm putting money in the offering plate now. Did everyone see that? Is it on my Insta? And that's equivalent of what's going on with them. He says, what did they do to deserve your honor? Now, remember what James has started with. He said, all good things descend from the father of light. He's talking about trials and tribulations in chapter one. He's talking about difficulty. What do people in difficulty tend to do 
If they see somebody who might have the resources to get them out of that difficulty, are human beings more likely to treat them the same as other people who are suffering or to treat them better in the hope that they will elevate you? And they look and they go, well, that guy's going somewhere. All you have to do is watch a professional athlete or a rapper or a rock musician with their posse. And you realize that those people, what, what happened with the, where's Ryan? Wasn't there, there was that bodyguard this week. The, the what's, what athlete was that? Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant. His bodyguard's just one of his buddies from, from, uh, from home, right? And everybody latched on you haven't, because Kevin Durant probably makes what? $20 million a year. More, $30 million a year, $40 million a year. Yeah. And everybody went, wow, Kevin, tall kid, going to school, basketball player. I'm latching my train to him because he's going to be rich. He's going to be wealthy. He's going to he's gonna take me somewhere and he's going to take care of us. And I join his posse. And I, That's what we tend to do, isn't it? We tend to look around and go, what, what is my path out of a, a, affliction? If my path out of affliction is to, to latch on to somebody who's going somewhere, I'm going to do that. And James says, you know what happens there? He says, they don't care about you. He says, you dishonor the poor man just because he's poor. And you honor the rich man just because he's rich. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. The kingdom of God has both of them in it. But the reality is that if we use that as our gauge, as our decider of who we're going to treat well and who we're going to treat poorly, that is not a thing of Christ. That is an unbridled tongue. If you truly, in verse 8, if you truly fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I love this. Now, this is a subtle little language nerdy thing. But remember, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And the second is like unto the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. James calls this the royal law, as in this is the king's law. So guess who James is calling the king? Jesus. He's saying Jesus is the king who made this law. He said, "If you, this is the royal law. If you follow the royal law, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. Now, James is going to be real subtle and gentle and soft in the next couple of sentences. If you show partiality, in other words, if you're discriminating between people because of their class or their money or the rings that they wear, you're putting people in positions of preference because of the way they look, the way they smell, the way they sound. He says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. In other words, all of the law, keeping all of the law is required. And since nobody, since you guys, the church he's talking to, since the church, the, the, you guys are showing preference to the rich, you're violating the law that says, love others as yourself, then you are as guilty as an adulterer or a murderer. I'm sure that sermon went over really, really well. I bet everybody was saying amen after that one. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, the law of liberty is again, he's describing, he's talking about Jesus's words. 
For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. James basically looks at a church that's dividing itself over silly, stupid human standards. Oh, well, that guy's got a a really nice ring on. Oh, that guy's got a, a retinue of servants who come and take care of him. Oh, that guy, he actually has had his hair cut. That guy's beard is groomed. That guy looks looks great. And we might flip it around on the other side. And again, this is not criticism in any way, shape, or form. I'm not making this this way. But you, you somebody pulls up to church, and they've got a gorgeous, gorgeous car. And they jump out, and they are wearing shoes that cost more than every piece of clothing in your closet. And that's not hard in my house. I think my entire closet contains about $150 worth of clothes. And most of that's hiking boots. Um, they, you, they show up, they show up and, and you look, oh my goodness, they look, or they show up and their, 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 their wives, you know, um, are gorgeous and, and just everything about this family is perfect. And you go, oh my goodness, that's the, that's the family I want to be around. Those are the people that obviously Jesus loves them more than he loves the rest of us. And then at the same time, you got in that same church, you got a mom and dad dragging in after working 14 hours right through the night, rolling their kids out of bed because even in the first century, kids were tough to wake up and rolling their kids out of bed, just kind of flop them into the clothes from yesterday so you can get to church and they come in and they're bedraggled and they forgot the money and they don't know where they are and they're just trying to find a seat. And you go, well, God doesn't love them. God obviously doesn't care about them. James is looking at a church that's just made completely silly, stupid decisions. Decisions that are driven by looking at things from a self-indulgent, self-serving angle. I've told, I've told this before, I just mentioned this again. Um, I intentionally, as the pastor of this church, have absolutely no idea how much any of you give to the church, with the exception of my wife and I. I don't know. I don't count the offering. Bob is not allowed to tell me who gave money. Now, every once in a while, there's a really, really big offering. Last year, there was one that was like $13,000 or something absurd like that. And I went, I just, I think at the time Bob was on vacation and it was actually Mike was counting or what. Anyway, I went to whoever I was talking to and I just went, just a question. Was that just a lot of people getting their tax returns or was that one person? I just need, I just need to know what's going on. You know, I don't need names. I don't want to know numbers. I don't want any associations. I never see what's going on. And there's a reason for that because money is a powerful influence. And the pastor and the elders of this congregation cannot allow ourselves to make decisions based on whether people will give money toward it or not. Our decisions have to be based on what is the calling of the gospel and the work of the ministry. The decisions have to be made not on the silly human standards of self-indulgence. Oh, well, if we just get a few more wealthy donors in here, we could fix the video streaming so we, Dale and I would not be running around like chickens with our heads cut off at the beginning of service. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, if we could just get a few more donors in here, uh, we could get another couple of air conditioners. So we could refit the, condi- the, the refrigerators, the kitchen, so we could eat meals all the time. We could just get a few more donors in here. Pastor wouldn't have to live in a parsonage. He could buy himself a little McMansion with a gate and a summer house. 
maybe a personal jet. We just get a more, you know, and that's and and we we sit there and we think about that's all. Well, you know, we have to distance the gospel because it is a transcendent God driven thing. We have to distance from our own self-indulgence tendencies to see someone of privilege and want to be privileged. I had to stop reading books from pastors um, that pastor huge churches. People always recommending books to me. Oh, you should read such and such as a book. He wrote this book and his church is amazing. It's got 873,000 people in it. And, uh, you know, their budget, their annual budget is $73 million or whatever it is. You need to read this book. It's got all this wonderful thing. I'm just going to tell you something, guys. Church leadership material, books written like that, that is like like temptation between pages for pastors. Oh, well, if I just do things the way that so-and-so did it, I'll build a big church. That, that's the same self-indulgent attitude as they have toward these rich people. We're not called to be the next mega church down the road. We're called to be Bedford Road Baptist Church. And whatever the gifts are that we have, whatever the abilities we have, whatever the financial restrictions we have, whatever it is, we're called to be a community of believers who journey together toward Christ. That's what we are. And whatever God provides for us, he provides for us. And if you you look great and you look wonderful, that's fantastic. I'm glad you look great and you look wonderful. And you, you look scrubby and you're worn out and you're exhausted. That's great because Jesus loves both of you equally. Jesus has called both of you equally to serve in his work, to be a part of his gospel and his kingdom. But there's so there's a self-indulgent focus and then there's another side. There's our focus on the character of God being united with him and his purposes. And the decision between those two is not easy. Now, James doesn't ask this question, but I think it's implicit in the text. He's writing to a church church that's going through trouble. Remember, they've been run out of Jerusalem. They've been scattered all over the Roman Empire. He's writing to them. And let me ask you a question. Who would you rather be leading the church of Jesus Christ in times of trouble? Now, this sounds like a really pragmatic question. The ones who can escape to their summer homes or the ones who have to fight alongside you? Who do you want to be in the trenches with? The officer, um, I, I'm remembering back Band of Brothers. I don't know how many of you have ever watched Band of Brothers on HBO. Uh, just one of those great, I watch it every year around Memorial Day. I always watch the series. It's great. The sequel, Pacific, not as good. But Band of Brothers is fantastic. In Band of Brothers, there's this one lieutenant or captain that every time they go looking for him, he's taking a nap. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's a sergeant. Um, who is who is there and he's in everything. He's involved all the time. And so who are they going to? When, when the bullets start flying, who's the guy you want leading that platoon? Do you want the captain who's always taking a nap and always finding excuses to get to headquarters and has the resources and abilities to just get out and let you do the work? Or do you want to serve alongside somebody who's going to get down in the trenches and serve with you? Who's going to bear the trouble together? Who's going to face it? Would you rather be who would you rather be relying upon to anchor your community when things get hard? The ones who only have Jesus to hang on to or the ones who can hang on to their own wealth and worth. 
I'd rather be around those who only have Jesus to hold on to. I, 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 now, I get it. We all have financial troubles that would all be fixed if I just went on TV and smiled more. And tried to sell people something easy and convenient. And, and I get it. I get it. But the reality is, we've got to anchor on Christ, and that means we've got to abandon some of the wealth and prosperity and worth of this world. See, James isn't condemning, and I want to make sure you understand, James is not condemning people for being rich. And he's not applauding people for being poor. He's talking about the church's attitude toward those two situations. He's saying you can't allow the situation, the circumstances, financial resources or otherwise, determine the meaning and the method of the church. Because when trial comes and persecution comes and difficulty comes, all of those conveniences, all that wealth, all that prosperity, it's nothing if we're not anchored to Christ. So where are you anchored in your community, in your faith? What are you relying upon? What are you trusting? Are you trusting the wealth of others to carry you through? And I don't just mean the financial wealth of others. I mean the spiritual wealth of others. I don't need to read the Bible. Eric does it for me. Well, I don't need to pray. I, I know for a fact there's a whole bunch of guys who are praying all the time. I'll just give it to them and they can pray. Oh, I, I, I don't need to sing. I don't need to serve. Uh, you know, I would much rather pay. I, I actually, this is, this is a weird note, but I actually had this conversation with somebody very on, early on in my pastoral ministry. I was preaching a series on evangelism about how we're supposed to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with uh, the people in our world. Not, not that we need to walk around banging on doors, slipping, you know, giving people a copy of the Watchtower or anything like that. We don't, we don't circulate the Watchtower, just you know. Um, just leaving that out there, just so everybody's aware. That's a different group. We can talk about them later. Um, but, but uh, we, we, uh, you know, and and I was, I was, you know, I was talking to the church. I was like, look, man, we're we're called to be missionaries. We need to be out there. I had a member of our church. And this was a long time ago. Not anybody, anybody knows. Come up to me and say. I appreciate the message that you shared, but isn't that what we pay you for? I was very young, so I will not tell you what my response was. But the reality of it is there is often a mentality that we live on the wealth of others. And the reality is the truth of the matter is we all need Christ. We all need the royal law. We all need to look into the law of liberty. We all need to be, like he says in the previous verses, doers of the word and not hearers only. Not just sitting and absorbing and, and isn't it wonderful, but rather active, moving, transformed and changed. James says, a church depending on the rich people to take care of them is not going to survive the trials. 
A church that, that, that demeans, uh, on the other side of things, the church that demeans those who don't have the human standards of wealth is not going to endure the trials. I wonder how it was. And I won't get into ridiculing particular things, but I wonder how it was for all of these money-driven you know what I'm talking about. You watch Christian TV. They preach a five-minute sermon and give a 20-minute fundraising speech. I wonder what COVID did to those churches. I know of a couple examples where they went to the federal government to pay the salaries of their staff. Multi-million dollar industry churches. What I call the Christian industrial complex. Well, we don't have the money. We, the, the giving is down. People haven't come to church. Well, gee, I wonder if they were more concerned about the rich paying their way than they were about going through the trials together and being anchored on Christ. I'm just going to end with this little amazing thing that I've shared before about our congregation. When COVID hit and we had to shut the doors of the building for three months, I think it was. You guys stepped up, paid the bills and some and 2020 to 2021 was financially our best year in the history of our church. And it wasn't because all the rich people lined up. It wasn't because people were walking around Merrimack going, you know, with COVID, I just have all of my wealth sitting around. Could I just give it to you? <laughs> it was because the people in the trenches committed to the gospel, committed to the community of faith, said this is what we believe. Now, we were set up, and Bob and, and Janet can tell you, we were set up to be able to operate for six months with no offerings whatsoever. We have enough of a cash reserve to be able to do that. We did not have to touch that in any way, shape, or form. The church of Jesus Christ, people, rich, poor, tall, short, ugly, fat, good looking, not so fat. It doesn't matter. We're here because of Christ, because of the Lord of glory. And James says to the church, anchor yourself. Not on the appearances, but on the substance of Christ. That's true religion. You say, what does this have to do with widows and orphans? If there were rich people walking into that church building, or that church, wherever it was meeting, how were there still widows and orphans if those people were truly followers of Christ? If that ring on the finger of that rich man that was being given a position of honor could have paid for the meals of all the widows and orphans who were part of the family of, the, of God, who was their father. And the rich person walked in and said, I am a member of this family too, but did not turn his eye to care for those in need. What did that say about him? About her? About the attitude of the, the church that maybe that wasn't available because the widows and orphans were all pushed in the corner. Let's not talk about that. We are called to be, and I say this all the time, we are called to be the church of Christ. That is not a human institution. It is a spiritually bonded 
network of relationships of people who name Jesus as their Savior and love one another and serve one another in the community of faith. And it passes from generation to generation. It grows and it changes. And it's always about Him and never about what you look like, you sound like, you smell like, you talk like, what car you drive, what house you live in. It's all about Him. 